0: Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the April 16, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, Shahir Mazri will weigh in about the climate initiatives moving through Congress and about his next climate change awareness track, this time up the western states. He'll bring copies of his book Beyond Debate Answers to 50 Misconceptions on Climate Change. He'll be bringing that to some of the new venues that he'll be visiting up the west. Then in the second segment, performer, teacher, and activist Dr. Darrell Akon will talk about his role in the Long Beach Opera world premiere The Central Park 5 composed by Anthony Davis. Dr. Akon will in addition talk about Long Beach Opera's companion justice-themed lectures during the season. We'll be right back after a short station break. Thank you for staying tuned, everybody. My guest in this first segment is Shahir Mazri Climate Science researcher, activist, and author. Shahir has appeared many times on Ask a Leader. Briefly, I'll introduce him one more time. He is an environmental health scientist with a doctorate of science, degree in environmental health from Harvard University as well as master of science from Harvard, bachelor of science from UCLA in environmental science. He has given numerous talks on climate change and has been published in The Hill. He still does, and among other newspapers, as well as scientific journals. He's an assistant specialist in air pollution, exposure assessment, and epidemiology at UCI. His recently released book, entitled Beyond Debate, Answers to 50 Misconceptions on Climate Change, focuses on addressing common misconceptions about climate. In it, he's a bit of a renaissance guy covering chemistry, physics, biology, engineering, and politics. He joins me once again in studio. Welcome back, Shahir, to Ask a Leader.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: Thank you. So, breaking news. Well, that was last week when I was setting some of this up. Breaking news was the record high temperatures in Alaska. I mean, it's it's a deafening breaking news. I mean, p- people are thinking breaking news that's happening yesterday out of Paris. That, but let's we're that that is another situation. But um, so let's talk about what let's what you're processing when you get this new data about how high the temperatures have been there in Alaska.
1: Yeah, it seems like we're breaking news every month and every year, um, every week, every week, and and it's always uh, breaking in different places. Um, it like wasn't, it's broken. Yeah, it's broken. I mean, it wasn't too long ago that Alaska broke records uh, just a year ago when <clears throat> we were in uh, you know thawing conditions in the dead of winter um, up in the North uh, Arctic Circle. So this is a trend that we're going to probably see moving forward. Um, you know, record warmth in odd seasons, record cold during odd seasons. Um, that's the kind of... Uh, If there's any consistency with climate change, it's sort of uh, inconsistency. So uh, erratic weather changes from what we've seen growing up and what our parents and grandparents have experienced.
0: So we have a lot of initiatives, and I think there's a lot going on strategically and tactically, with so many initiatives being introduced. And I want to be intellectually honest, With have you be that way in talking about what's the agenda and the interaction going on with these. So first, let's talk about what you think of what the Green New Deal is about, what it's trying to do as we talk about these others. We'll, We'll start with that one.
1: Sure, I get that question a lot. Um the Green New Deal, uh, I mean when you read through the Green New Deal, there's really nothing in it that strikes one as disappointing, you know, from just a, you know, pragmatic s- standpoint of where we'd like to be as a society. I mean, it's talking about reducing the income gap. It's talking about uh cleaning up the environment, both water and air. I mean, I think these are all things that we can all agree are good for society. Um I think where you get into a little bit of disagreement is There's this, uh, some of the timeline, 12 years to get to 100% renewables, for instance. Um, So, you know, it's possible that that's, pretty ambitious. I think that that is unlikely to happen. I mean, if you just look at the history of where we are on this issue, I'd be very shocked if we were at 100% renewables in 12 years. Um, and one might even argue that that could be uh, economically disruptive. So maybe some uh, conflicting, uh, some, some uh, debate to be had about the timeline there. But in terms of the general thesis, I mean, that's exactly what we need to do is we need to set ambitious targets, we need to get to 100% renewables or as close as we can And uh, I I don't think we should, uh, what's the expression, make the perfect the enemy of the good? Or, uh, you know, there's another expression, if you shoot for the stars, you'll land on the moon. And I think this is one example of that. It's ambitious. Aspirations
0: um, are absolutely a driver.
1: But it's also, I heard Bill McKibben say, um, you know, it's the first proposal that is actually commensurate with the scale of the problem. And I think that's important to keep in mind.
0: Right. If you don't set that goal, if you don't aspire, then there's this kind of incrementalism that is... Putting us in reverse here. And I, I actually, after that Bill McKibben talk, was here. His, he gave a couple of talks, and then what Citizens Climate Lobby brought together and those themes, I jumped on. I got this uh, public search announcement 12 years. We've got 12 years, and sort of right. to keep that in mind. So then Matt Gets, panhandle Congress guy in Florida, comes forward with the Green Real Deal. Resolution. Let's talk about what he's doing with that.
1: Sure. And uh, to follow up, you know, one of the benefits of the Green New Deal is again, it's bringing conversation around climate change in a meaningful way in the political sphere. So now, like you mentioned, we have a Republican from Florida who's now talking about climate change. And, you know, for far too long, not enough has been said. So this is a good thing. At least we're talking about it. Um, in terms of the Green Real Deal, as uh, you just mentioned, you know again I, uh, he's a he's a fan um, doing something about climate change at least he says so he's not a fan of the carbon uh you know dividend approach which we can talk about later he kind of has four platforms for his approach so he's talking about increasing nuclear uh retrofitting the energy grid um I don't have a big problem with those. thing that I do have a bit of a problem with, or I'm at least suspicious about, is the opening of the public lands. And he's talking about opening these lands.
0: Fair and equal access to energy development right. on federal lands. That's, That's pretty, right there in his resolution.
1: And it's pretty nonspecific. Energy, uh, you know, energy. To grab. Right. So, uh, you know, you can sugarcoat this. as calling it solar and wind is what we want it for. But who knows if all of a sudden we start seeing more coal exploitation, more uh, oil, natural gas. So... I'm a little suspicious about that part.
0: Well, we also, in preparation, we talked a little bit about he's leading with the, not the goals part, but what the uh, kinds of projects with carbon storage and recapture.
1: Right, and and that's something that I think we really need to keep in context, um, this is not a proven uh, technology or proven uh, approach to solving the climate issue, you know, storing it underground. This is an academic exercise, essentially, at the moment. And there's really no way we can know that it's going to be seismically sound over hundreds of years. Let's say we store, you know, a gigaton of carbon under the earth, is that going to last 100 years, 500 years? What happens when we get earthquakes? Um, you know, We just don't know enough about that sort of methodology to really say that we can confidently store carbon dioxide underground.
0: Well, um, as I was raising with you, too, that there isn't a guarantee. It's a net zero, net negative proposition with greenhouse gases.
1: Right. It's It's definitely not a guarantee. And this isn't just my opinion. I was interviewing a scientist at MIT in the fall uh, who essentially called the carbon sequestration thing a big crock of you-know-what. So I really think that, you know, and another sort of downfall of that approach is one could view this as um, enabling us to just continue the path forward, you know. Keep pulling out carbon. Yeah, if we we tell ourselves that we can just store carbon, then we're not really, um, we're not really, going to try as hard as we ought to, to prevent carbon from getting into the atmosphere in the first place. And that's really where, where we need to focus our
0: efforts. And um, there's also this lower regulations kind of thread throughout his approaches in there. And it, it, so it seems to be a, a very ideological versus an, uh, well, I'm just going to say it, as aspirational kind of, you know, ur- an urgency there Yeah, I in mean, the climate. I don't feel like you're scared enough.
1: I think you're probably right. I mean, he is he does seem to be um slipping in some of those uh those uh, political uh you know one side of the aisle
0: dog uh, whistles.
1: Yeah, and and not allowing regulation, uh putting like a damper on the clean power plan and other efforts. I mean, I think that uh there's definitely some some things that are being slipped in that deal that are not necessarily in the best interest of the climate. And he talks about uh, he talks down on the approach of a price on carbon emissions, saying that's going to send, uh, you know, coal and oil and fossil fuel jobs o- overseas. And that's not good for the climate if we're just exporting these jobs. But that's really not how this carbon, uh, you know, a, a price on carbon would work. The whole idea is that the uh, companies that are getting taxed are going to pass that tax on to the consumer. Consumers are going to start making more wise decisions about where they spend their money and ultimately uh, drive consumption towards uh, fossil free products in, in the marketplace. So he's sort of missing that piece or disguising it. I'm not sure.
0: So you're sneaking in here the back door with the, the house resolution 763. And we've talked a little bit about it with other guests on the show. It's the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. Of, it's 2019 is when it was, it was pushed out. So you mentioned that a little bit. So, you know, it's a, an interesting situation to watch activists trying to take coalesce around very different approaches in in these different initiatives so uh take what you uh take up what you would like about the this the energy innovation carbon dividend act and how you independently you're not speaking for any particular movement but uh well the movement but not a particular organization how that can be compatible with the other initiative especially i mean the green new deal
1: Sure. So the Green New Deal, I mean, it fits right in there. Um, the whole goal is to get to 100% renewables in 12 years. Um, and uh, if I recall in the Green New Deal itself, I think it mentions putting a price on carbon. Um, and uh, so to to sort of explain what that would be, what that entails is uh, you're proposing, we're proposing to put, uh, by we I'm saying, uh, the bill is proposing to put $15 um, price uh, on a ton of carbon, carbon emissions. And that gets put on at the, uh, at the port, you know, if you're importing fossil fuels, or if you're, uh, drilling for, you know, oil or natural gas, uh, it'll be taxed at that area. And then that trickles down throughout the whole sort of product chain, eventually, uh, inflating some of the prices on the heavy carbon intensive products in the marketplace. If I'm going to buy, I like to use the example of a very simple, um, uh, an apple in the store. If there's two apples and, one is shipped all the way from Boston, or one is shipped from Washington. There's going to be, of course, different transportation distances associated with that, and uh, the fossil fuel in shipping is going to be drive up and reflected in the price of the apple. So hopefully, the the cheaper apps apple will be the one that's grown closer by, uh, all other things being equal, of
0: course. Right. Yeah. Actually, I think about that when I'm consuming huge carbon wine. footprint wine, on- like wine. I mean, I, I you know, yeah. thank you, New Zealand, for bringing that over here. But that's I. I can't, well, I can't. I can't pick it up.
1: I can allay your your worries because uh, some of the the wine that's shipped on barter over the ocean is actually has a pretty low carbon footprint. It's only when things are uh, getting shipped over land or or through air that you start to see a really high carbon footprint. So they're probably shipping. Oh, it that's on the boat. interesting. Yeah. Okay, well that's why you're here. <laughs>
0: For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming on the web and uh, he's he, you, you maybe you're following Shahir on his Instagram account right now and Shahir is my guest air quality researcher, author and climate change activist sorting out these climate legislative initiatives on the federal level his book and his West Coast climate tour are what we're talking about too uh, that will finish up on that topic that beyond debate answers to 50 misconceptions on climate and he just uh, talked about a misconception i have had about the carbon load of shipping my Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand to the west coast so let's go back to those initiatives then so but I'm I'm watching the citizens climate lobby folks they're they're Trying to reconcile the kind of, let's call it ambitious, the kind of sweeping language of the Green New Deal, and so there has what? Let's say you are our, you are the uh, consultant to them. What would you say would be uh, the, taking the best of Green New Deal to keep coalescing with all supporters behind the climate change activism?
1: I think that. One of the most important things to just drive home to people is, um, you know, under this proposal, everybody actually gets a monthly dividend. And I think a lot of people don't realize that you are going to get a check in the mail every single month from the government on the order of, you know, could be up to if you have a family of four, uh, $200, $300 a month coming from the government. That's pretty exciting for the average day, you know, the everyday person. Oh, well, yeah. You know, that that's not an ne- negligible exist amount of money. did exist before that. Right. And, um... I think that's gonna be one of the things that really keeps people um, you know, on board with this. You know, up in Alaska I don't think it's changed since I last looked at it. They get about a thousand dollars, I forget if it's if it's per year, um, from, the petrol revenue, yeah, from the uh, fossil fuel industry up there, um, for slightly different reasons. But people up there are getting money checks in the mail for you know the exploitation of fossil fuels in that area. It's time that every citizen gets check in the mail if uh, companies want to continue what they're doing. And hopefully, again, with with the trickle down effect of the you know higher prices for fossil fuel related commodities, hopefully people start to shift those uh, to greener products. And the benefit there is. The more you shift to greener products, the less essentially of a carbon tax you're paying because you're not buying those products that are taxed. And then your dividend actually is even more of a net profit. So it's really got a lot of great things in it. Um, And I think we should all keep that in mind that, you know, the everyday person is going to get money from this bill.
0: So I'm wanting to see how you would try to bring the best out of these two two different initiatives to sort of bring on as many people because this urgency calls for and any and everybody to sign on.
1: It's hard to, at this point, see bringing people on the other side of the of of the, of, of AOC's aisle um, onto the Green New Deal, just because it seems like it's been Alexandria
0: Ocasio Cortez' case. Right. It seems like fortune. it's
1: she's you know kind of been a, a lightning rod lately, and and the Green New Deal has also been a lightning rod uh, lately. So it's hard for me to see the Green New Deal getting you know bipartisan support. Um, so I'm not sure that in its current guise, it's very feasible. I think we might have to go through. But again, this is something that gets the conversation going. Uh, We're already seeing conversation now on both sides of the aisle. So for me, it's not so much about how can we um, make the the Green New Deal tenable for everybody, but possibly how can we get the conversation going and actually get a bill that we all agree on that's going to be good for everybody and we can move the climate issue forward.
0: So there's going to be lobbying going on in June uh, and in the federal and state and local levels as well, that uh, citizen climate lobby is going to be putting together um, among other uh, entities. So, but you will be on the road starting May 6th. So let's talk about what you've learned from your continental tour and what you are going to do based on what you've learned there. I call it the Tour de Pacifique, but I don't know what what you got. Do you have a name for your tour?
1: On the Road for Climate Action is the uh, title we used in the fall and summer, and then that's also what we're using moving forward across the Pacific Northwest and on into Canada. Yeah, so we kick off on May 6th. Again, this is just a grassroots project, my fiancé and I.
0: Please don't say just anymore.
1: (laughs) This is. This is a uh, this is a grassroots project. Uh, important grassroots projects taking place all over the country. This is one of them, and we are going uh, extending. You know what has already been thirty six state tour to communicate climate change to the public, to the everyday person. Uh, we speak at colleges, high schools, junior high schools, church groups, citizens' climate lobby groups, uh, Rotary clubs. You know we go everywhere we can to talk about climate impacts, climate causes, and also importantly solutions. And we also hear from people, so we want to know as we travel the country. You, you know, do not. still, yeah. We from still from the other I mean, one, yeah. Yeah, we we still, uh, you know, we ask questions the whole time throughout the, and, and I take notes. You know, what do people care about with respect to climate change? What kind of observations are people noticing? And those tend to change regionally. I'm actually, I've I've quantified a lot of what we observed on the first tour, and you know, the science part of me is always trying to think of how we can quantify things and and put it into a publication and. I actually have submitted a science paper uh, quantifying, and we had a survey that we took along the way, which helps us do that, submitted that. So hopefully we'll actually have a publication that really summarizes everything we've observed on that first tour. Uh, But on this second leg, we're going to continue asking questions. You know, what what kinds of solutions do people feel would be best? Uh, What kinds of concerns do they have? Maybe this can inform local politicians on where they put uh, some tax dollars. And our website does a great job of bringing stories and that's another important point you know we think of carbon we think of climate change still in you know parts per million and these graphs that we see on tv but we're increasingly seeing uh, the story side of things you know in the news there's always these record-breaking natural disasters scientists have been warning us about they're happening Um, So we try to interview people, video interview people, bring those stories to the public, not through uh, the media or through the politicians, but just through the grassroots. And our website shows a lot of different videos. We've interviewed scientists, farm workers. um, One farmer telling us that they had 17 inches of rain in a single 24-hour period, uh, washed away all the crops. These are the stories we're bringing to people through our website. And uh, and for those listening, roadforclimateaction.com is the website. We have a growing video archive. Uh, I've still got about 40 videos in my really? back pocket that okay. I just have to find the time to edit and bring there. So far, there's probably about 10 or 15 online. But yeah, that's the nature of the new project. We're going to go from uh, May to mid-June. And then during summer, I'll be giving talks locally. Um, this past weekend, I gave a talk at a junior high school in San Juan Capistrano uh, drove back down to give a talk in Tustin in the evening and you know the next day basically two two talks again Sunday as, as an Earth Day booth so I'm trying to get as get out there as much as possible talk to people about climate change I think that's the kind of action we need to really see this 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 issue get taken care of people need to be talking about it and they need to know um, what's happening
0: how about some kernels of what took place Something you learn from them or something you notice really caught on with, on the, road. with the, the middle school kiddos and the other families? Oh, the unit? middle
1: school kids are always so fun to talk to. And um, they're some of the brightest bunches that we speak with. I mean, uh, in one case in in uh, Connecticut, you know, the kids knew all about greenhouse gas emissions and, and um, the whole fossil fuel, you know, issue. In terms of what I've learned from them, um, I learned that, you know, we can. You know, seeing these kids grow up, uh, you know, pre- envisioning these people grow up. I have no doubt that our future is going to be in better hands than it is today. Um, learning about climate change from, you know, sixth grade uh, and, and having real discussions about it, learning the science behind it so that we're sending people off into the, you know, into society with a background about this issue that isn't coming from, you know, uh, different, uh, you know, again, politicians or um blogs or media outlets that aren't, you know, being truthful. I think that that's just really reassuring. And the more that we can get, you know, the science of climate change into the curriculum of of the youth, the better off we're going to be down the road. I mean, you know, more science is never a bad thing. Uh, You know, we need to understand how our world works and um, also talk about uh solutions and that's kind of one of the things i try to bring to the students yeah Uh, there are solutions and they're probably just hearing the science but i kind of got to bring a bit about that there's great youth movements happening right now to um address climate change
0: so shahir using uh, the analogy of a jigsaw puzzle so the demographic let's say a more mature demographic that you have talks with versus like the middle school demographic who's who's put down more pieces of the puzzle what does it look like? Who's or who's putting the edges down? I, I
1: sort of talk to a bimodal distribution of people. Uh, a lot of retired folks. Oh, much retired and and much, then a lot and of much really young people. Yeah. So I need to get those those working uh, age people uh, into my into my climate conversations. Uh, but it's difficult. Uh, you tend to see you know if you're talking to a a school where they're sort of forced to to sit there and attend class, or you're talking to adults, most of which are retired. They have the spare time to be there not a lot of other distractions in their lives. So on this next uh, Road for Action tour, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, how can I get more people uh, my age and in their 40s and 50s into the audience? Um, You know, because we're – and voting is an important, you know, way to to get climate issues moving forward. And there's a huge voting demographic that uh, I think we still need to bring into the climate conversation. Many people
0: my own age. So you'll bring that up on the West Coast tour, the, the voting. Yes. What do you say?
1: Uh, oh, I always say uh, you know I don't I don't advocate for voting Republican or for voting Democrat. I advocate for voting for Earth, for voting for the planet, voting for the climate. Um, you know, this is an issue that is an umbrella issue for all the other top national issues, such as national security, immigration, the economy, these are all housed under climate change. They'll all be affected by climate change. Um, There's no disentangling these issues. So if you care about all these issues, then you do care about climate change, whether or not it's on your radar. So I think that that's just a message I drive home is, you know, pay attention to candidates who, for one thing, uh, uh, recognize that we have a climate problem and that it's caused by humans and subsequently that they have a plan to address it. And and that's important. You know, nobody should be going to Washington uh, if they don't have a, a plan to address climate change.
0: So here it seems like, just speaking from experience of the new congressional delegation in Orange County, that there is a way to talk about the power of voting to bring legislative action. That just it looks like it's it's there's just more activation with this legislative delegation in Orange County and that there is there's a way to talk about, yes, be an engaged voter. And yes, you can you may get a more engaged legislature too, legislator.
1: Sure. I mean, so you brought up the case of Orange County. Uh, We had just, you know, only months ago, a county that was comprised mostly of local politicians who didn't care about climate change, uh, one of whom outright denied climate change uh, and, and thought it was just uh, you know basically a fantasy, it was only through grassroots efforts, through voting, through people getting really fed up and active at the voting booth that we now have an entirely different Congress composed of people who are um, endorsing these new climate uh, initiatives moving forward and who are really having an active conversation and trying to get climate policy on the table. So it's uh, incredibly important to see that it was voters and everyday people who decided they want to have a voice, who are now changing potentially the the face of climate policy in the United States, which trickles into the
0: world. So, in wrapping up, tell us that you'll be leaving on May sixth, and you will be bringing your book along. You got lots of copies with you, That's but true. and so I, I was just bringing up that delegation now as a, as a way of t- uh, following. Uh, giving the example of what what it looks, what's the payoff, what's the dividend for, not the carbon dividend, the, the legislative dividend for uh, engagement. And so I don't know if that is going to be something that can be a sort of proof in the pudding there for you. So we've got Shahir Masri. He's on his way May 6th. Taking his book, Beyond Debate, Answers to 50 Misconceptions, Continuing to Connect with New Audiences. And, uh, Shahir, I really thank you for being on Ask a Leader today.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Shahir Masri, as I was saying, is my guest, and he is the climate researcher and activist on the road, May 6th. Thanks for staying tuned. We'll be right back in after a station break with Daryl Akon talking about Grand Central 5, an opera whose world premiere will be this June in Long Beach Opera Association. Welcome back to the show. This is Ask a Leader. 30 years ago this month, five African-American and Latino-American teenager they were arrested for an assault and rape of a jogger in Central Park. Anthony Davis has composed an opera about this saga. My next guest this in this segment is Dr. Durrell Akon Bass, baritone, performing in the role of one of those wrongly accused, Antron McCray. Daryl Econ's recent repertoire includes roles in Don Giovanni, Barbara of Seville, The Magic Flute, Aida, Carmen, and Fidelio. An advocate for the American opera of the 20th and 21st centuries, Daryl Econ's performed in the Christopher's Opera Champion, the role of Martin Luther King Jr. in Philip Blass's Appomattox, Porgy and Bess, making his debuts uh, in Germany, and uh, Tel Aviv and in uh, all, all over the world and as well as a principal male dancer. He's earned awards in the NATS Artist Awards Competition, the Nicholas Lauren Competition, the Harlem Opera Theater Competition, Trout Museum in Appleton, Wisconsin, Chicago's Bel Canto Foundation Opera Contest, and the Neil Silva Young Artist Competition. Daryl O'Conn completed his Bachelor of Music degree in Vocal Performance and a Bachelor of Arts degree in Government with a minor in Ethnic Studies at Lawrence University and Conservatory Music. He earned his master's degree of music and doctor of musical arts degree in voice from the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. A Fulbright scholar to Italy, Daryl Khan is a frequent presenter at venues at conferences, bringing his scholarship on blacktivism activism and the power of performative education. As project director for Long Beach Opera's Community Conversations Initiative, Dr. Khan is using his work in activism and education to promote. And facilitate discussions about race, equity, and justice throughout the Long Beach and Los Angeles areas. I think it was conversations number one, and I'll attest to how much, how intentional, and how really revelatory it is. He is coming to us today from Chicago. He'll be back later, <laughs> but he's coming to us today from Chicago here to talk about his performance coming in Southern California this June. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Darrell Akon.
2: Hello. Hello, hello. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Kindly, thanks. First, just to be as deferential as I can possibly be, I'd like to establish, Darrell, what is the best way of referring to these five gentlemen the subjects of the opera, The Central Park Five?
2: You know, I mean, I think it has become pretty standard to call them the Central Park Five or the Five. I mean, I guess another option would be to call them all by their first names. Um, but since there are five of them, that may become a little difficult in, in conversation. Um, <laughs> to my knowledge, none of these gentlemen are offended by the terminology of saying the Five or the Central Park Five since it has become such a famous term around the case.
0: So the this case, it can be broken down in several different sections. And uh, I'm, uh, when looking into this, I've, I've been interested in what the members of the, this group have said about their life coming full circle. It's, so this story has a huge arc. What parts of the story does the opera take up? Talk about the whole entire arc of the opera, please, Darrell.
2: Sure. Well, when you first, the opera begins with a prologue. It's a three-act opera. It begins with a prologue. And the prologue, you hear the Five um, talking about life in Harlem, talking about the world is ours, talking about, you know, you hear different mentions of art, but also of the discrimination faced by members of the Harlem community and by extension, of course, the Black um, and Latino communities in America. And then once we get To the end of Act 1, we get the jogger case, and you hear, even in the orchestra, you hear the jogging happening, and then you hear the chorus talking about, you know, this woman has been attacked and raped, and uh, we're looking for the suspects, and then these five gentlemen are brought in, and Act 1 ends with them first feeling like oh we'll you know we're fine because we didn't do anything so this is going to be fast even though they have been brought in by the police this will be fast we'll just tell them the truth and then they'll release us and then at the longer they're at the police station one of the last lines of act one is something strange is happening they are aware that a case is beginning to be built against them um then when you get to act two you get a little bit more insight into their lives, um, dealing with the police, dealing with the the DA, um, and talking to their parents, not understanding really what's going on. Keep in mind, these are gentlemen who are between 14 and 16 years of age, so they don't have a lot of life experience or a lot of insight into how these types of things work. Um, And so they talk to their parents, there's a lot of crying. um, And then finally, when we get to act three, a lot has happened. We've had, uh, you know, Donald Trump's characters come in talking about these guys, the DA comes in talking about these guys and the opera ends with the guys basically saying that, you know, this is going to get better for us. And, and, and you, of course in the immediacy of the opera they're talking about the guys and and they're going to get out of prison and it's all going to be okay as we know you know ultimately they they are exonerated and and even given given a settlement but there's still this sustained sense of pain and sense of of discrimination and hurt that you can hear in their voices and and i think that speaks to larger society and and one of the last lines of act 3 and of the opera is when will it end Um, and for these guys, of course, this happens even after they're out of prison. They're still wondering when will these types of situations for people who look like us and have similar experiences to us end.
0: So, Daryl, thank you for, in in that arc, you're also explaining how many, there are a multitude, then, of roles, of characters that are performing. So the the family members are represented in in voice and among other people in the community and uh, all over that you mentioned?
2: Yes, um, the the mothers and fathers of of the five are some of them are taken out of the chorus um a lot of them are not considered principal roles but they're secondary right. roles and so yeah so like for example an alto or soprano may represent one like yusef's mother or and a tenor i believe represents my father uh, Antron's father, but then you have, so you have the five, and then you also have Donald Trump as a character because we all remember yes. he made some very disparaging comments against the five um, during the time. We also have an assistant DA character, and then the most fluid character, I would say, of the opera is a mass character who sort of takes on. Different roles. Sometimes he speaks as the community. Sometimes he speaks. Uh, Why well, should be more specific? Sometimes he speaks as the black community. Sometimes he speaks as the police. Sometimes he speaks as what larger society thinks about these young men. And so you will see him in a lot of different interactions with both the five and with the assistant DA.
0: Is this the figure that I've seen that on the internet that the, he has both the white and the black uh, sort of colored faces yeah. So yeah, that's that's, that's the character. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. Well, you'll be singing in the role, as we said, of Antron McCray, one of these uh, five teenagers that were implicated in the rape assault. They were charged in April of 1989. Just a little background for folks. They were convicted in August of 1990 and eventually exonerated in December 2002. Tell us, Darrell, about your preparation, including whether you had a chance you could acquaint yourself with Antron, his family and his friends and his legal team.
2: Sure. Well, I I am still um, acquainting myself with Antron and his story and um, trying to gauge as much as I can of what he carried into this moment in his life. You know, he was a young boy really, a young teenager of 15 when this happened Um, and from what I can gather he was very shy, he loved his mother, he um, lived with his mother and his stepfather in Harlem, that's where he was raised and he was an athlete, you know, he played he was coached by his stepfather and was a pretty good student at a career academy in town. And so, you know, in, in many ways, just a regular teenager living in Harlem, trying to make a life for himself until this happened. And it's very unfortunate uh, to consider the type of personality you, you gather from um, Entron's history because this is a shy Guy who, you know, he has his group of friends, presumably as a form of protection. I remember growing up in, you know, not in Harlem, but in St. Louis. Oftentimes, I really was not very interested in anything that was happening in my neighborhood, but I still. Kept a group of friends around me just because I felt more protected. I felt more like I was a part of the story happening around me and therefore was protected from any of the the implications of of what, you know, of the violence or of the crime or or any of those things. I could decide how I wanted to operate within those circles. Mm. And I think Antron had a a similar experience, Um, just this shy guy trying to live life, trying to, you know, better himself and get out of it. Um, And and then this happens.
0: For those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader, my guest is Dr. Darrell Akon, Long Beach Opera's Manager of Engagement and the Community Conversations Initiative Project. He's a bass baritone performing in the role of Antron McRae in Long Beach Opera's upcoming world premiere, The Central Park Five. And uh, Anthony Davis is the composer, and the libretto is by Richard Wesley. So you've mentioned other characters. if. Media is the character. Could you talk about how media is conveyed in this story's arc? Sure. You know, I
2: don't think that media, at least the way we understood it, media, played as as I assume you're getting at, made a, played a huge role um during the time and and i will say we don't necessarily get a ton of that in the opera because the opera is really focused on the five themselves and kind of their interpersonal interactions among each other but also with the da um and with their their family members but we do get a little bit of what we got out of the media through the chorus or through the mass figure but a lot of it comes in the form of just stereotypical statements you might hear Statements about the guys. Statements about what happened in um, the case and, and this woman being uh, abused um, and, and attacked. And but you get it in the form of like we are outraged more in that. And so it's kind of meant, I believe, to be more metaphorical as opposed to actual articles or actual newscasts that you would have heard during the time.
0: And. To also follow some of the others, I, and Antron McCray, by the way, he's hard to find, in you know, in the media. And now I guess that's the shyness coming through that um, it's just hard to find out about him. There are others that are very outspoken and a motivational speaker. I think uh, Mr. Youssef is so. But back to the the point of the media that it was exploding at the time this case breaking. But the exoneration, the the outspoken members of the Central Park Five, that the, the media is just like it's a whiff of, of coverage about the exoneration, which it's another way they've been, you know, victimized.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and and that's one of the reasons you speak about Entron being hard to find. You know, after yeah. this happened, he... Changed his name. Um, and because he, like, even once he had been cleared of the conviction, there were still so many things held against him. Still, There were still folks who believed that they did it. Um, he tried to find work in the police department and prison system, believe it or not, and both denied his, his applications because of his conviction. And to this day, he's still struggling to find good solid work. Um, He's working as a forklift operator, I understand. Okay. But he only recently has been willing to come out, and um, it took him a while. For example, you probably know about Ava DuVernay's um, series coming out on Netflix. It took him a while to agree to that, because he is a very shy person, and and this had a huge, huge impact on his life. Um, And to the point where he says, uh, there's a quote from him saying that you know he lost his religion because of this, and as he said, crying. He said he doesn't believe in anything. He said I'm by myself. Like even now, like I feel myself becoming emotional to yes. think that this had on such a young person, you know, who I assume had been very religious if he were anything like your your average black person living in Harlem during that time. Um, But he said, I'm by myself because, you know, as as we hear in the opera and I'm sure happened in real life, a lot of times these these young teenagers were wondering, why is this happening to us? Like, what have we done? And just seeing that arc of like, oh, of course, the truth will prevail. Like, we're going to, you know, just tell the truth, guys, and we'll get out and seeing that turn into like, wait a minute, like. Something is against us. Something is being constructed against us. This is not going to work out the way it's supposed to work out. Um, You know, I think that plays a parallel for Entron with his faith, Um, and and that's just so tragic to me.
0: So I'm going to leap around in the order of what some things I want to bring up because I want to tack on tightly to that point. The fourth in your series of Community Conversations will be Guilty Until Proven Innocent. Paired with with the Central Park performance, um, the and I I just want to run by so that that we multiply Antron McCray's case by the multitude of other wrongfully convicted, and so there's there's it, I mean we're breaking it down. There's it's the wrongfully convicted of capital crimes, just that in, of itself, it's three to 5% of all convictions. So we're not getting into the other crimes where there could be wrongful arrests. We're not getting to the the arrests themselves, which can set somebody on a totally, uh, can un- unravel somebody in, in terms of how they're able to keep a job and keep their family together and all that, just an arrest by itself, not to mention the the lingering effects of a, of a conviction. So, but to think of three to 5% of capital crimes are wrongful convictions. That's hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of Antron McCrays that had their lives shuffled and their religion lost.
2: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'm happy you brought up the community conversations. Our next conversation is actually April 30th. And that's one about that actually deals with formerly incarcerated individuals. Um, yes. And then this May 25th conversation on guilty until proven innocent, we actually have someone, um, Gary Tyler, who um, served 41 years in jail um, in Angola prison, you know, which is Oof. said by many to be the harshest prison in our country. In Louisiana. Um, yeah. And he served 41 years before he re- was finally released. Uh, for first-degree murder, um, and he's going to give that keynote speech, um, and that just goes to show you—you know—I mean, this man—he is 60 years old right now, so more than half of his life was spent in prison, and so more than half of his life has been shaped by a system that is just so ill-formed and 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 so ill-functioning, um, and to imagine that he is even able to give these types of speeches. And, and, and to my, I haven't met him personally yet, but to my understanding, he still has such an optimistic sense yes, um, within, you know, and, 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 and how he speaks and, and his views on life. And I think that that goes to show the power of the person, the power of the individual to overcome these types of, atrocities really um and but the sad thing about it is, is it shouldn't have we shouldn't have to be that strong you know and and because that's just not you know we shouldn't have to be so strong till we have to overcome unfair strictures in society because not everyone is confronted, you know, it confronts right. those types of, of systems. And all, there are only certain members of our society that face those systems. And, and I think that is a testament to the inequity in our society. And I'm, I'm so happy to have the opportunity to facilitate these conversations yes. um, around these topics. And, and I, I should say that I mentioned two of them, the April 30th and the May 25th conversation. And then our last conversation of five, is June 6th, also during the run, uh, or during the rehearsal period of Century Park 5, and that's a conversation entitled Black Lives, The Art, and Mattering, and that's going to be a keynote speech by Anthony Davis, the the composer for Century Park 5, and we're going to take a look into the future. How do we move forward? How can the arts be involved in telling these stories, in catalyzing these difficult topics? So all of these are very poignant topics, and, and I hope anyone who's available in the area um, is able to come and join us for them.
0: So I will be sure to include for listeners the link to the Long Beach Opera so you can see all of these conversations are located around Long Beach venues so that it's not far away from our radio station here too. And so I guess to collapse. A couple different points I wanted to otherwise make in a longer form was that preparation, If somebody's still not aware of what happened with the Central Park 5 case, that the Long Beach Opera does offer a link to go and get more background. Will the gentlemen involved in this case, will any of them be taking in, in this performance? And where will this world premiere for this Long Beach Opera production be going on after June? Sure.
2: Uh, the your first question yes. is, I think I'm not sure if any of the actual five will be in attendance. Um, I've been in touch recently with uh, Jasmine Harris of the California Innocence Project, yes. and there may be a connection between us and one of the Central Park Five, at least, which could lead to who knows where. Um, so I'm going to follow that, and, and hopefully we can we can more intimately involved with them in terms okay. of what they know and, and the insight they're providing to our projects and to the opera. Um, in response to your second uh, point, I think, the first of all, the, conver- the opera is going to take place at Warner Grand Theater for yes. our run. Yes. And then after that, it just depends on the reception. As with any world premiere, you kind of have to do it first and see how people respond. And then, you know, a lot of times other Producers will come along, other opera company administrators will come along to see the premiere and decide if they if it would work well in their respective houses. Um, And so we're we're very optimistic about it because it's a great story and it's a, a story that is very important and very timely for the events happening in our society today, a lot of which are identical to what was happening in 1989, um, in many ways we 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 forward, but in many other ways we haven't moved anywhere at all. So um, it's it's a, a sad truth, but um, it's it's important that we that we face them.
0: And the, it is a, an interesting time, and that maybe that there will be. Uh, more opportunities for this production because of the movement in legislative arenas to deal with the mass incarceration and uh, other aspects that, um, I mean, uh, mass incarceration doesn't even get at the wrongful convictions, but I guess with, uh, with new technologies and I think a, a sense of outrage that's bubbling up at, you know, with greater intensity that the central park five kind of opera production can be seen and taken in and discussed in more places around beyond long beach it seems well thank you Darrell, for taking this time today to be on ask a leader i'm so so appreciative of your being with us today
2: my pleasure claudia it really is thank you for having me and thank you for holding this discussion it's, it's very important
0: and I'm looking forward to meeting you again at the next one. I know I'll get to the, the uh, well, I'm hoping I get to the April 30th for sure. I want to get to the guilty until proven uh, innocent one on the, the, the 25th. So good luck Great. to you. I, I can't you wait doing. to hear, hear and see you in the performing roles. And um, always, there's always more to the conversation. Thanks again, Terrell.
2: All right. You have a good one. Thank
0: you. You too. We're going to close with some Anthony Davis uh, variations in Dream. And that was my wrap. Uh, Next week, I'll have on Ben Leffel, UCI PhD candidate in sociology and co-creator of the Center for Innovative Diplomacy Digital Archive. He'll be talking about his work with the ICLEI, Local Governments for Sustainability, an important international strategic alliance. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.